0: Hello, listener, and welcome to Straight Shot Health Talk. This is the podcast that provides honest and straightforward information about health, wellness, and how to survive our crazy healthcare system. This is for people who want to focus on getting well instead of just treating symptoms. Sound like you? Then let's get started. All right, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Straight Shot Health Talk. This is your host, Dr. Kevin. And for today, we have a guest uh, who is really quite remarkable, has some really amazing stuff online that I highly encourage you to, to check out. But this is Dr. Pamela Weibel. And Dr. Weibel is a family, family physician. She is a pioneer in what is called the Ideal Medical Care Movement, which we'll talk about in a little bit here, uh, who basically left a standard practice in medicine in 2004 and created her own clinic uh, and has been very successful doing that. And since that time, she has done TED Talks, uh, on health, talking also about physician suicide, which we're also going to talk about a little bit more there. Um, so this should be very exciting. We're going to talk a lot about things that are, that are specific to physicians, but those will have a heavy impact if you are not a physician on how you actually uh, pursue your own health care. So I encourage you to listen to this full interview here. Dr. Weibull, great to have you on Straight Shot Health Talk.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me and inviting me to do the
0: show. All right, so um, I gave a little bit of your background now, but could you kind of fill in a little bit more detail than what I provided?
1: Yeah, I'm a family physician. I was born into a family physician, so essentially I've been in this career since day one, going to work with my parents at the hospital. and. So, I, I developed a real love for people early on, and I saw that the potential of a physician to really change people's lives at points of, of drama, you know, when they're really in the midst of making life and death decisions and bringing new people into the world and, you know, helping others with um, just the transition through death and illness. I just found it absolutely compelling and a beautiful way to spend my life. And what really attracted me is just the academic stimulation and the ability to have these long uh, connections, these relationships with patients over time, and make a difference in their lives. So, uh, I think that's that's what often drives people, I think, into medicine just the humanitarian aspect. So,
0: yeah, um, no, it's an so, yeah. amazing responsibility. Now. As compared to to this day and age, how were your parents, being both physicians, were they encouraging, not encouraging when you finally said, or was, was there any doubt? Did you just say from the time you were five, I want to be a doctor, and they're like, hey, this is awesome, or did they try to persuade you? What, what was their feeling about that?
1: Well, my dad pretty much introduced me as a doctor in training from, like, (laughs) age two or three at work, you know. (laughs) And uh, since he was a pathologist and his patients were dead, they were fine (laughs) with it, you know. Um, but we also worked at a a methadone clinic and the patients who were drug addicted were a pretty easy crowd to please as long as you gave them their methadone and so you know they were fine with a kid in the room and uh, you know he had a lot of really kind of interesting odd jobs with the city of philadelphia you know as the medical examiner and you know, back then before breathalyzers, they actually had to have uh, live doctors at the police department to check in patients. So we spent every eighth night in the police department and, you know, the guys with the DUIs really didn't mind having a child in the room. I think I kept it a little lighthearted for people who are in the middle of some serious trauma in their lives. So, um, but I just, I I just absolutely loved it. My parents, you know, essentially, I think they knew I was going to be a physician. But when I actually was at the point of, um, you know, being pre-med and going into med school, I think they saw the writing on the wall that the government was coming in, third parties were intervening, and the actual role of a doctor to make these long-term bonds with patients and really transform their lives, they felt was not going to be the same for Mm -hmm. me. And so they warned me, you know, not to go into medicine. That this, this really, um, they they felt this a, the 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 profession was going downhill. <laughs> so yeah.
0: And like all good kids that listen to their parents, you decided to not follow their advice and go to medical school.
1: Yeah, pretty much. As a <laughs> as a teenager, I was not going to follow their advice on anything, <laughs> who to date or what to do with my life. Right. So.
0: So you you have this. This, you know, this ideal of what you think that medicine is going to be and really beyond an ideal. I mean, most medical students, that's what they have because most of us don't have physician parents and don't have as much exposure as that you did. But you definitely had this idea of what you were going to be doing as a doctor. You go into medical school, then what happens?
1: Well, I'm pretty shocked by how barbaric the training was. I mean, this is like 1989 to 1993 when I was in med school, and we still had dog labs. I mean, we were supposed to kill people's prior pets, I guess, in our physiology lab, which I thought was like, I didn't see it coming, and it was nothing that I had imagined I would ever be asked to do in medical school to kill an innocent animal, you know, as part of my training, it just made no sense. So um, I protested that and, um, and yeah, I was able to get exempted. But I, I did feel like medical training was almost like a cult experience where people really gave up a lot of themselves, their, their soul's purpose, and became indoctrinated in something that I didn't necessarily feel – was that healthy (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know so it was it was I would say a traumatic medical education experience at least the first two years in medical school once I got with patients I was fine you know being with real life people and taking care of people was lovely but um yeah some of the training uh, seriously needs to be revamped humanized (laughs) yeah
0: yeah, you do kind of dehumanize people there. but mm-hmm, So mm-hmm. you finish medical school, and I think that's, at least it was for me, was with the next big transition was you come out of medical school and you're going into internship. And, again, you go from the medical student to, um, at least at least in, in, in my training, you, you kind of run around thinking you're doing important stuff, but in more you're, you're uh, often getting in the way, and people just sort of say, just do this where you're transitioning now to the role where you have some responsibility, not a lot of control, but but much more responsibility. How did, how did that change, or what did, was your residency experience like?
1: Oh, I had a great residency. I think because I had such a poor experience in medical school, it could only get better. (laughs) And so my experience just got a lot better after the first two years of med school. I chose a residency that was a perfect specialty for me, of course, family medicine, because I'm a real big picture thinker and I like to deal with, you know, from womb to tomb, you know, entire communities. And so Department of Family and Community Medicine at University of Arizona in Tucson was perfect for me because they had an emphasis in behavioral health. So it was almost like a little bit of a psychiatry residency mixed in to a family medicine residency just because their emphasis was not so much procedural and was more behavioral. So so I made a good choice So I found that that was a really um, excellent experience for me. I I don't have any horror stories from residency.
0: No, that's that's (laughs) great. You know, I I actually enjoyed my residency very much too. And sometimes I feel bad when I'm talking to other physicians about it because I don't know. Sometimes some of us actually had a good residency. So
1: yeah, especially docs and in like surgical residencies, and uh, wow, they can be brutal. Oh yeah, yeah.
0: oh yeah. Um, So okay, coming out of residency, then. And you're ready to go. You came out of a program that really clicked with you. I love the aspect of behavioral health. I didn't even know that a lot of the residencies were doing that um, in family, which I think is so important. And I'm wondering now, actually, after this interview, I'm going to go out and look and see if there's residencies that have that more incorporated today. Um, but you're ready to go. You're ready to start saving the world. What happened when you finished residency?
1: oh wow, I took a salary job that sounded great at a distance and it turned out to be like assembly line medicine where I was supposed to be seeing patients you know, every 10, 15 minutes, double booked slots. I, I think like the typical scenario that most physicians find themselves in when they enter these really large medical organizations with extremely high overhead that pretty much drive high volume and I didn't quite understand what was going on, but I, I thought at first maybe it's just isolated to this particular job, but I tried six jobs in ten years within the first, you know, decade that I left my residency program, and they are all variations on the mm-hmm. same theme. And I just couldn't believe it, you know, whether it was a uh, migrant farm worker clinic or a, you know, physician-owned small practice or a large multi-specialty group, they were all pushing volume, Mm -hmm. which seemed to be driven by this out-of-control overhead. And uh, and I, I just honestly, at that point, decided you know, that I needed to do my own thing or go back to waitressing or do something where I could really be a live human being again and enjoy my contact with people. (laughs) Even if I had to work in a coffee shop and just do simple things, you know, I just needed to smile and have relationships with people and not push them out of the room in seven minutes while they're crying. You know,
0: so I kind of want to touch on that a little bit more because people may be listening. There's There's an impression out there You know, well, doctors, you make really good money and you should just suck it up. And what are you complaining about? And uh, it it becomes very difficult, I think, for people to understand. It's beyond money, I think. Can you can you touch on a little bit more of of what it's like to practice in an environment where, again, you're uh, you know, where, where you're pushing volume, like you said, getting as many people through as fast as you can and what that actually does to you as a person?
1: Well, I think people should really understand that physicians don't pick this career on a whim. <laughs> like, we really put a ton of energy time and we delay, you know, our you know childbearing years, getting married. We pretty much put off our 20s and 30s while everyone else is at parties and having fun to get this amazing education so that we could, in the end help people which is really why we're doing this we love people and we want to help them and so the the strange um kind of ending to the story for most doctors is they get through their training process and realize that wow some of them realize they didn't even get the proper training to really help people. Uh, Others realize they're in employment scenarios that makes it impossible for them to help people. And it's just like an assault on humanity. And, Unlike, you know, real estate or banking, I'm not putting down other professions or people in retail, you know, a lot of people can change professions through their lives, they're not particularly really attached to a certain profession. But I think when you go into medicine, and you spend that much time and energy, it really is our soul's purpose, like a deep soul. Spiritual calling, our actual identity to be a healer. So when it's not working out after you spent three hundred thousand dollars in student loans and you know spent your twenties and thirties doing this, it's like a huge um, letdown. It's just overwhelming. And you know what I mean?
0: <laughs> oh, oh yeah. And, and I, what I think is really interesting about you is that you then, I mean, a lot of people, I think, get into that first role. And then they have, you know, excessive student loans. And they're, they're like, well, it, I'm starting this practice. It doesn't seem to be great and it seems to be wrong. But there, I'm sure there's someplace else out there, but they delay looking for it. You actually went out and, and tried, what did you say, six different other yeah. locations.
1: Right. Yeah. Six jobs in 10 years. And I mean, my resume looked like I was really unstable, mm-hmm. you know, and so but that's I'm just an oldest child. I'm stubborn. I'm i am determined. I'm one of those people that like if something isn't working, I'm a really bad employee. If the place is not run well, I really can't <laughs> stay. You know, that's just my personality.
0: Right. So. And, and so you go out and you and you see that the system as a whole, the the you know, the, the overall system is no different. And I and yeah. I'm just gonna insert something here and I'd love to hear your opinion on it. My experience with this is then you have two different groups of physicians that are in that. You know, in, in excluding the fact that you can get out by the way, people, which which we're gonna get into in just a second here. But most doctors then get in the system and you have two. They're the ones that that remember what it was that they were trying to do. They were trying to do what was best for their patients and really trying hard. Despite the system, and those are the ones then that become two, three, you know, sometimes four hours behind. Uh, they're seeing patients late. Um, they're, you know, people are getting mad because they're waiting a long time. But although some of their patients will appreciate the fact that they know that, that the reason they're waiting is because that doctor is spending a lot of time with the other patients. Um, but then those those doctors, their groups are getting on them for being not, you know, not productive enough. That their uh, their staff are going into overtime issues. Um, and that's one group. And, no, and then, they're, of course, they're losing all their free time. They're uh, not being able to see their family. Their children aren't seeing them. Their spouses aren't seeing them um, because they're catching up all the time. That's one group. And then the other side of it I see is the people that start checking out, going, you know what? Um, I may have gone in this for another reason, but it, I, they stop caring. And it becomes getting people in and out as fast as they can, giving them pill, sending them to whoever else they want to see really, you know, trying to say, well, you know, I'm here now, I might as well make some money, and and just doing these churn and burn practices, um, kind of stopping that idea of what really, what they went into medicine for. Um, Have you seen that at all, or or is there a different perspective that you have on that?
1: Oh, yeah, I've totally seen that, and I think that physician psychology is well understood by those who are leading these healthcare (laughs) organizations, because they know that once we lose the meaning, we go for the money. I mean, that's a compensatory response to losing meaning Mm -hmm. because as human beings, I think we need to feel like we're winning at some sort of game. And since we're in a capitalistic society, like, okay, the game is who can hoard the most stuff. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And once the um, meaning part is gone and the spiritual piece is missing and you're obviously not going to get that at a production line practice, Uh, unless you uh, basically destroy your personal life and (laughs) become Mm -hmm. your profession and never see your kids and stay there all weekend and all that, work on charts on Saturdays and Sundays, um, you know, so you can spend more time and skip bathroom breaks and don't eat yourself. (laughs) I mean, the only way to get that spiritual connection with your patient is to uh, lose yourself and your family. But I think that some people just decide, okay, they're just going to turn it into a money game, you know, which is basically what we're incentivized to do Mm -hmm. with our, you know, bonus structure and our, you know, financial packages that are presented to us when we sign on these contracts.
0: Yeah, and then you, you throw in that with the high student loans, and then I think, you know, most people come out after having delayed everything for so long. They buy a house, they're in a community, um, I and I, I kind of agree with you. I, I think the people that, you know, run these organizations understand that, that, that there's a lot of fear in medicine, and people are afraid to leave. Uh, and then they just kind of mandate these work environments and people will stay because one, one, they they're scared of moving. And number two, um, similar to your experience, it's no different anywhere else. Right. So. All right. So you were not satisfied with this and how? 10 years into this process, six jobs later. What was the breaking point? What made you change? What, what brought you to that point where you said enough is enough and I'm going to either do something different or I'm going to go start waitressing again?
1: Well, my last employed job was at a part time practice where I only worked, like, I think Tuesdays and Wednesdays. So, like, two days a week, you know. And here I am in my mind going, you know, come on, Pamela, you can do it. It's only two days a week. I mean, if you can't be happy working two days a week, what are you, an idiot? You know, like, and so I'm sitting here having this talk with myself, but really, two days a week on an assembly line churning people through. Still didn't make me happy. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I was like, what the heck? You know? I mean, from the outsider's point of view, it would look like I'm getting paid good money to work two days a week, and I still can't make it work. I'm a failure. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. As a physician in America. And the other thing that I realized is, like, the other doctors at this clinic who were all working part-time, they weren't really uh, happy either, and they were kind of, like, terrorizing each other. It was a really weird situation where nobody was at the helm except the clinic manager who, you know, ended up, like, I don't know, I can't even go into, like, some of the bizarre stuff that was going on there. But the point is, nobody was at the helm. It was another <laughs> highly dysfunctional clinic full of dysfunctional physicians. None of them were happy. In fact, a lot of people there started getting illnesses that could couldn't be diagnosed and they were going to specialists all the time Mm -hmm. and it's like this place is going to make everyone die and become ill (laughs) you know what i mean and so it's just bizarre and i had to get out of there i got out and i realized you know geez i couldn't make anything work in medicine in the (laughs) united states i better maybe i'll just go back to waitressing you know i mean i had a good time as a waitress i wasn't very good at balancing the trays i spilled things on clients but they still gave me good tips because i think they thought i was like lucille ball and i was kind of funny you know so i was a really good funny waitress but somehow i was not able to like thrive as a physician with my great extroverted personality because i didn't have time to get to know anyone because i was Full bladder running from room to room, you know, probably like that Lucille Ball um, little uh, episode where she's doing the chocolate oh, factory. Oh, yeah, the chocolate factory you know, one. That's yeah. probably how I felt with patience, but it just it didn't look very funny to the patients. Yes. Um, yeah. But probably from an aerial view, I might have looked funny. <laughs> um, and, and one other thing I have to add is I tried really hard all sorts of ways to be happy in these, like uh, – extremely unhappy situations. I even with one nurse at a multi-specialty group started, I put a sign up in our corner of the clinic that was called the happy triangle. And I even drew a line on the floor, like anyone coming over this line has to smile and be like really happy and joyful. And I got sent to the um, clinic manager and then the administrator's office for, um, I was told that, uh, that I can't be happy at the job. I'll make other people feel worse because they're so unhappy Like, really, I was not allowed to be happy in my position. And so, like, everything was just such a mess. You know, just I would say layers and layers of misery, starting from the miserable patients to the miserable staff to the miserable people behind the bulletproof glass to the miserable doctors. I mean, it's just like literally misery attracts company. That's what these clinics are. They're like misery factories.
0: Yeah, you know, I um, I I, I want to go on to something after this, but but this just reminded me because, uh, I I'm like firmly convinced if you if you actually had an innovative healthcare either system or medical group that really paid attention to making an idea like a great practice environment, and we're not saying that the the physicians would just sit around and do nothing all day, but a place where they can actually be doctors in a way that is, uh. That serves you know, makes makes them you know feel like they're providing to their patients the best care possible. I'm convinced if you did that, number one, or the physicians would be happier, the patients would do better, the outcomes would be better overall. And yet, uh, I, I keep looking. In fact, I was at a national conference and talked to a um, a physician who was supposed to be one of the stress among physician experts, blah blah blah. And I went up to him afterwards and said, "This is a great talk, but where is an organization that's doing this?" And he said, I, there aren't any. I don't know any that are doing it." And I'm like, "Well, come on. You know, why aren't we? Why aren't we designing this kind of thing where physicians would have a? You know, why aren't aren't these healthcare administrators, these healthcare programs actually looking at this as a way that you can have good retention, happy staff, happy patients, happy outcomes?" But that was my little side rant there. Sorry about that.
1: Well, I think they're not really looking at it. First of all, cynicism is so uh, out of control in our profession that a lot of people don't even believe anything can change. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like, I don't know, convincing like the masters with the slaves that like there's a way that they could make the slaves happy. Well, the way to make the slaves happy is to free them, yeah. the Emancipation <laughs> Proclamation. Like there is no middle ground. You know what I mean? Either you're slaves on a cotton field or you're free. Mm-hmm. Is there... Other ways you could make the slaves happy and maybe throw birthday parties and do, I don't, I don't know, is there a middle? I don't know if there's a middle place. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, once physicians have their self-esteem, their self-confidence, and their happiness back, they're going to step out of their paper chains and leave. These large organizations know the only thing keeping the physicians there is terror. They're in paper chains in the dungeons. You know
0: what I mean? Oh yeah, actually, that's a that's an excellent point. That they're, um, you know, yeah, that's an excellent. They're they're
1: basically their employer's only competition. Yes. Now, why would an employer empower their only competition?
0: Yeah. No. Absolutely. So, um, tell us a little bit about. And uh, we haven't talked about this, so I'm going to introduce a term that we did not discuss earlier. But town hall meetings and how town hall meetings changed your practice or created your practice.
1: Well, I was in bed for six weeks, seriously depressed and uh, suicidal. I think because I realized that if I went down to the coffee shop down the street and applied, they probably wouldn't accept me because I'm overqualified <laughs> now to work at a coffee shop. And I just, I just was like, I was at my wits' end, you know. And so I thought, you know, if I can't be a healer here on this you know, in the United States, and it was 2004 at the time, you know, just take me out, you know, I can't deal with this anymore. And then I had this epiphany, I think, because I laid there for so long in a self-induced coma, (laughs) that I mean, I was able to start really connecting the dots in a way that I couldn't when I was really busy doing my laundry and eating and going to work, right? Mm -hmm. I took like that moment of reflection for six weeks, you know, and I realized that, oh, wow, the patients aren't happy. I'm not happy. My colleagues aren't, like, nobody's happy. Oh, wow, what if we put the end user in charge? You know, because I'm exhausted. It's not like I have the energy now in my depression to sit and, like, rah, 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 like, let's start, you know, I'll design a clinic that'll, you know, be, like, the ideal for everyone. Mm -hmm. Let me just sit back ask the patients what they want, have them design it, and I'll just follow their instructions. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, let me do this the easy way, you know, instead of forcing. No matter how beautiful any doctor's dream practice is, you're still holding patients hostage to your beautiful idea of what you think they want. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, that's like taking someone to a restaurant and ordering for them. Or, you you know, I mean you really got to put the end user in charge in the service industry, you know?
0: Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense.
1: Especially if, like, look at all the conversation at medical conferences and these big organizations. You know how much time they spend uh, talking about why they can't get patient engagement? Well, you can't get patient engagement because you haven't asked them yeah. to do anything yeah. because you cut them out <laughs> from day one, and they, they don't have any power. Mm-hmm. You want patient engagement? Tell them you're going to design a clinic based on what they want. And you'll do whatever they want as long as it's basically legal, mm-hmm. you know. And that's what I did. As I just went out and I um, led nine town hall meetings in six weeks in my county, in Lane County, Oregon from Cottage Grove through Eugene, and uh, I basically just sat there. Like, it wasn't a lot of work for me, unlike, I guess, a political town hall meeting where the big special person arrives and tells everyone, you know, gives them the update on what's going on and what they're doing for Mm -hmm. them. I basically sat there and said, what do you guys want? I'll do whatever you want. Uh, I'm a public servant. You tell me what you want. I want to serve you, basically. You know, with a little intro, I'm not happy, you're not happy, there's got to be a better way sort of a thing, you know, and so I handed everyone essentially like a blank sheet of paper that said, create your ideal clinic, and I told them to just go for it. I said, you know what? write your wildest ideas the most off-the-wall things like you know the things that you think could never come true just write it all down you never know i might be able to do it right i mean i I said everything from like describe the doctor what do you want the office to look like what color should it be where should what should the office hours everything anything write it all down and i after all these meetings i got um well after they wrote things down some people were not so much into writing but they wanted to just uh tell out loud, you know, some of their ideas in the group setting. And other people didn't want to talk and just wanted to write. So mm-hmm. I literally took, you know, auditory and uh, written testimony. And in the end, I had 100 pages of of like what I call the community mandate, you know, what people in uh, Lane County, Oregon want for ideal medical care at the time in 2005 is when it was. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I I am like 20, 30, 40, 50 years ahead of of the of the politicians now, you know, (laughs) because I have in my hand what people really want. Yeah. And here's the deal. As long as I do this and more, I'm over delivering on 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 what people are not getting anywhere else in the country. So I felt like I I really got the recipe for success. And um and it just it's it was all I can say is I feel like my life has been very effortless since then. <laughs> I mean you would think, oh God, that's hard. You opened a clinic, oh you gotta do the billing and the code you know, it would seem hard from a distance mm-hmm. but the fact that I took the fight out of it, like I didn't have to go to You know, I didn't have to go take my testimony to Washington, D.C., or a committee meeting or get it stamped or approved. Like, I'm a doctor with a medical license in America, and I can do whatever people tell me they want when they write it down, as long as it's, you know, basically legal, which there wasn't really anything on there that was illegal, you Mm -hmm. know. So why we're all waiting around for somebody to descend upon us that doesn't even live in our town to give us the okay to solve our own problems locally, I have no idea. Yeah. I have no idea why, why we're so, – so many of our problems in this country, it seems like we're in a standstill waiting for, like, God, uh, the president, somebody to arrive and help us when we literally could solve our own problems. And yes. this is just an example in healthcare. And I really feel like, by the way, that was democracy in action. That's an example of democracy. Mm -hmm. You ask people, you know, Doctoring for Democracy, it's a book I wanted to write at one (laughs) point. You know, I just wanted to explain, look, I put the people in charge, and I have not felt like I've been really in a fight with my patients since. I don't know if you've ever felt this way as an employee. Have you ever felt like you're in a room with the patient and what you're trying to deliver is completely different than what they want from you? Completely mismatched expectations? Some sort of invisible tug of war, you know?
0: Oh, oh yes, I, I understand that quite well.
1: <laughs> well, it's like that whole piece dissipated. You know, once you ask people what they want and you're like, oh, like a big light bulb epiphany, this is what people want. Wow, that's exactly what I want to deliver.
0: So so what did they want? You don't have to list 100 pages, but what were like the top three, four things that people really wanted were for their health care?
1: Well, the number one thing is they wanted a humanized experience. So, you know, especially in primary care, there's no need to drive to a three-story parking garage, wait in a cafeteria-style waiting room, talk through bulletproof glass, go through the whole, all those departments, wait for two hours. You know, primary care, that means like you go down the street to someone in your neighborhood you love and trust, right? Mm-hmm. They wanted it to be, I love this a description, they wanted it to feel like they were visiting their best friend in their living room, who happened to be their doctor. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like that real uh, familiar, comfortable feeling of hanging out with a friend who just happens to be your doctor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's exactly what I delivered. So that's the number one thing. So human scale, right? Yeah. Uh, they wanted an integrative approach. So, you know, especially Eugene, Oregon here, I mean, they want to know that if they have, they don't want drugs first, right? So they have a problem, you know, well, will acupuncture help? Is there an herb for that? Is there something I can do before I take a pharmaceutical medication? You know, they really want natural, complementary, integrative approach, and they want me to, like, be aware of the other people that I could refer them to in town so I'm not, like, just saying, well... Western medicine didn't work, good luck, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, having them Google their way through their own problems, you know, so integrative approach. And then um, just, I, I don't, they, they wanted it to be accessible and nobody turned away for lack of money and, you know, just, um, I have a whole list, but the, the, the top two, really, most of the comments had to do with a humanized approach and just, you know, common sense you know, less intervention and more, um, more, uh, like health coaching and helping them, uh, with their diet and with lifestyle and with non-drug treatments.
0: You mean like behavioral and lifestyle changes for health yeah. issues? Oh my yeah, gosh. Yeah. That's like my yeah. Well, day. I mean, I'm
1: in a progressive <laughs> area here, so, you know, Oregon.
0: <laughs> well, I, I and I'm, I'm being a little facetious there, but the fact that, you know, of healthcare dollars are spent on the treatment of chronic disease and chronic diseases Mm -hmm. are diseases of lifestyle and behavior. Why would we not focus on that? And yet it Mm -hmm. isn't what we do in a standard Mm -hmm. medical model. Mm -hmm. I mean, it just blows my mind there. So, Mm -hmm. you know, the process that you're, so this process that you're just, that you're talking about here is really something that, I mean, if anybody had the courage to do it, any doctor could basically do this. They can post yeah. a flyer on the whatever library wall or whatever saying hey come mm-hmm. to this date and i'm going to talk to you about opening my practice you basically ask them what they want you compile them in a way and figure out what you can actually deliver and then you do it i mean
1: yeah right and and it doesn't i mean i really think we should start phrasing it you know what do you want this is your clinic i mean um i think that some of the jargon that we use kind of separates us from our patients when really you know, this should feel like their home, you know, because they use the term patient-centered medical home. Mm -hmm. Well, how rude is that? Did the patients have anything to do with designing this? That's like moving somebody into a house and saying, congratulations, this is your dream house, but it's a trailer park. I mean, like how is that there anyway? Yeah. So I think putting patients in charge and not every physician is like a, you know, wants to go out and do public speaking in town hall meetings. Well, that sounds scary, but really the thing is the smallest one I had was four people in a living room and the largest one was 30 people at a community center. So mm-hmm. it was all different sizes. And, and sometimes I tell physicians, you know, if you really are not so into public speaking, the next time, you know, you're line at, you're in line at the grocery store or you're at a, the, you know, at the airport, you know, just start interviewing people around you, you know, what's ideal health care? What would you want for an ideal clinic? And, you know, you can one-on-one just like record people. Just say you're a medical student, you're a doctor thinking of opening an ideal clinic, you know, gosh, what would you guys want? And people are so happy to share what they want, because I think the average person on the street feels like their opinion doesn't matter to anyone, mm-hmm. you know? When I was asking people about this, I had one guy who I approached at a parking meter downtown, and he said, you know what? More people should go around asking, you know, what what our opinions are, even if you're not running for political office, just just because you give a shit, you know? <laughs> and so... I think people are hungry to share with us mm-hmm. what they want.
0: Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So um, kind of transitioning a little bit here, you also are a – you really are outspoken on about physician suicide, which I don't think many people, at least maybe, maybe perhaps the people listening to this program, uh, know what a problem that is. Um, how did that happen? How did you get involved in in uh, you know increasing awareness of physicians' suicide and the harms it does, not only for physicians and their families, other physicians, but really patients um, in the, in their environments that they're practicing in?
1: Well, I obviously felt suicidal myself <laughs> after not being able to find a way to practice medicine, and that's what spawned my whole you know, epiphany, I guess, in creating an ideal medical clinic. But at the time, I felt like, oh, well, I was the only one that was suicidal. And that was just my process. I didn't quite realize it was a widespread issue. And doctors (laughs) were actually taking their lives at the rate that they are uh, until I I published a book, which is kind of like a chicken soup for the soul book for doctors. It's funny pet goats and pap smears you know mostly because I was having so much fun in my practice and I wanted to just share the joy Mm -hmm. and I had a lot of medical students come shadow with me and they would say oh wow you're the first happy doctor we've ever met and while that's you know an amazing um, compliment for me it really sucks for our profession (laughs) if I'm the first happy doctor that medical students have ever met and so I was inspired to kind of write this book almost as like kind of a a mentorship guide for medical students around the country because you know not all of them can you know rotate through my office so at least they could get the book right and after i published this book two days later the book that was supposed to help our profession be joyful uh we had another our third physician suicide in town so i you know i'm like oh well maybe it's not enough to write a book. You know, I ended up at his memorial service. I'm sitting in like the second row behind his family and his many children, the youngest in fourth grade. You know, he's a pediatrician who shot himself in the head in a public park in Eugene, Oregon. And I'm sitting there and I'm just feeling the pain and the, you know, and of course everyone's walking around saying, why, why, why? and i'm always cuz i'm a systems thinker i'm really trying to figure out you know why mm-hmm. like wh- and and not just why in this isolated instance but like the bigger why like this is it's more than just this one man mm-hmm. this is a uh, a trend this is a, a crisis in our profession and i'm sitting there at his memorial service and i'm counting like uh in my mind All the doctors who have died suspicious deaths that I know of, including both men I dated in medical school. And my list is getting really long. And I'm leaving this memorial. I had to leave the memorial early because that night I just happened to be teaching a physician retreat, which is a business strategy course that I teach biannually, and um, I had to be there, you know, out of town, up in the mountains at 6 p.m., and, the, you know, it was like around 4 p.m., in Eugene, it was going to be a two-and-a-half-hour drive. I left early on the way there. I am like I can't stop thinking of all the doctors who I suspect have died from suicide, which I was able to later confirm that they did, including, like I said, both men I dated in medical school died by, quote-unquote, accidental overdose, mm. Which, um, just as an aside, I would possibly believe that a musician could die by accidental overdose, but we dose drugs for a living. Mm -hmm. It seems highly unlikely that physicians would die by accidental overdose. I just have to say that. Um, But anyway... I opened the retreat because I'm, I can't get off the topic now. I'm one of those people, I get very obsessed. I have an obsessive personality. So, and I, I'm a problem solver and a systems thinker. So if you get me on the topic of physician suicide, I literally can't get off of it till I solve it. And it's been three years that this is almost the only thing I've been thinking about <laughs> because I'm trying to solve it. And I think I'm getting close and I'm definitely getting close to understanding why it happens. And, um, and so at this, Retreat. I open with the question, you know, how many of you have, um, have lost a colleague to suicide? And every single hand in the room is raised.
0: Oh, my gosh.
1: And then I ask, well, how many of you have considered suicide? And every single hand remained up except for one that was a female nurse practitioner. And I don't need any more proof than that, that we have a problem now. It's not just me going through a list at a memorial service. I'm confirming now with a group of doctors who showed up for a business strategy course that they've lost probably as many doctors as I have, you know, Mm -hmm. to suicide. I mean, one doctor in my town has lost seven colleagues to suicide. I mean, what other profession? Do you think they've lost seven people at Walmart to suicide? I mean, what other profession could you go into where you're losing seven colleagues to suicide?
0: Yeah, yeah, and I think certain specialties get particularly hit. And and uh, for those of you listening about this, it's estimated up to about 400 physicians per year uh, commit suicide. Um, it's been quoted on a number of websites. I'm trying to find the actual uh, the the actual studies on that. But but physicians as a whole, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, Pamela. Uh, I think male physicians are around two times as likely to commit suicide as as non-physicians and female physicians are three times more likely or are three to four times more likely to commit suicide as compared to the general population.
1: Yeah, I think w- the, what really stands out is that physicians in general are two to three times more likely to die by suicide than their patients. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, that's really strange. We're more likely to die than our patients. Um, and. Because 67% of physicians are still male, because it's, you know, male-dominated, even though 50% of incoming medical students are, are, you know, it's an even split in medical schools, we are losing more male physicians than female. And in my informal records of, like, close to 200 cases that I have written down just in my little... Uh, physician suicide diary at home of people who've called me to tell me about you know losing their colleagues and and such uh for every one female medical student or physician we lose we lose seven male physicians according to my informal Mm -hmm. study here of the numbers i've collected so i think this just goes to show we really don't have the data and we're not studying this properly. And um, many of these deaths, by the way, you know, just think about this. If you're a male physician, you certainly probably don't want people to know you died by suicide if it could look like something else. And so the number of maybe traffic accidents or other, you know, like, you know, where you really want your family to still get the life insurance, right? And you kind of drive off the road in the middle of the night, you know, like that could be a suicide, but it's called a traffic accident. So um, yeah, these these aren't being properly uh, recorded.
0: No, and and um, so so as a patient then, or someone who's who's really kind of involved in this, in this healthcare system, um, what do you think this impacts them, or how how? What should they do? I mean, the other thing we could talk about it, but what for, for the standard person who's listening to the program, maybe is just interested in health, why is it important that they understand their, their physician's health for them?
1: Well, I think we can only uh, give what we've received. And if we have not received the care that we need, Through our training programs, which often, you know, just to fill people in, you know, the mental health stigma is alive and well in medicine because there's a, you know, it's very punitive if we ever seek mental health care. And of course, we're the ones that would need mental health care because we see death and suffering all day long at work. So this is an occupational hazard of our profession Mm -hmm. and that we would have like the normal sad reaction if we lose a patient and we have no ability to go and get professional help for that without checking on our recertification paperwork and credentialing papers that we've sought mental health care at which point we might have to meet with the board and explain why we did that well we we did that because our pediatric patient died and we got sad you know what i mean it's like this shouldn't be like the spanish inquisition here but um Anyway, yeah, I think patients, it would just really help. A lot of patients contact me because they're frustrated because they can't get the mental health services they need or they they feel like their physician isn't really connecting with them Mm -hmm. or really getting what's going on. And I think part of that, like, don't take it personally. You're not being singled out as a patient, uh, just receiving uh, poor care. Your physician uh, does not have... um, the ability sometimes to even give you what you need because your physician, unfortunately, may be suffering. And in some situations, your physician may be in worse shape than you are. I mean, it's not great to think about that, but let's just be honest. If you're plotting your suicide during work, you're probably not giving your patients the best care.
0: Yeah, and certainly not that humanized experience that people are craving. Right, Um, and right. And which is really you know, that therapeutic human, I, I like to tell people all the time, what you're really going to doctors for is reassurance. That is mm-hmm. not a horrible, awful, bad thing that you have. And the vast majority of the time, what you're going to the doctor for is not a horrible, awful, bad thing. Um, right. But that reassurance and that human aspect is, is so important. And that's what we're missing. And, and, and in I'm kind of going off topic. I think that is what drives people to, you know, faster prescription drugs, you know, not doing the behavioral interventions. That you, like you were talking about that your, that your clinic really wanted Um, lots of specialty referrals and things. So um, the way I'm going to bridge this here is is Straight Shot Health is really about learning how to take help yourself to to with your health, right? To really encourage patient um uh patient interest and patient patient pursuit of their own healthcare goals rather than relying on anybody else. And I think for for patients, just realize if you're going to a doctor, we'll be able to exclude horrible, awful, bad things. You may not be able to add human aspect to it. But the frustration that we're seeing a lot of times is um, the doctors are feeling it too, and and just to have a little. If you're getting upset and mad that your doctor's two or three hours behind, uh, and if your doctor maybe is not saying what you want them to say, or seems to be cold, or or seems to have checked out in some way. Um, in some situations, that may be a warning sign that that doctor is severely burned out, and and uh, maybe just asking them how they're doing it may be something that you can do as a patient that can affect those physicians, or even just telling them that you care or you appreciate uh, what they've done for you um, can make a huge difference in a doctor's life and day. Uh, so that's a little thing for the for the patients out there. Well, Pamela, I, we've had you for oh my gosh, almost uh, over forty five minutes here. Is there if you were a patient today? Not being a doctor, which will be hard since you were growing up around physicians and things like that, where how, how what would you do for your health? How would you um, utilize healthcare? What what would you do?
1: Well, I would be proactive. I would have like very specific goals for myself about you know how I'd like to live my life and what my um, you know tr- trying to be self-reliant as much as possible. If I have diagnosed, uh, if I, if I've been diagnosed with diabetes or, you know, hypertension, I would, you know, obviously get my own home blood pressure monitor, get my blood glucose monitor, you know, I would study myself to see how my diet and lifestyle is affecting my health and try as much as possible to get off drugs and to use physicians just as, um, you know, if I, if I'm not able to solve my own problems. So, I think so much can be done if patients will take a proactive role and really do what they know that they need to do and mm-hmm. could do on their own. And I, I think that if you're looking for a doctor, really important to get somebody who have good chemistry with you, feel, you know, that, that you have a, it's like finding a good spouse. You know, you have to go through a few before you find the right guy or gal to marry. And it, it should be taken really seriously when you pick a doctor. I mean, you want somebody who is respectful of you and their office is respectful of your time. And, um, and so I, I just think patients can be should be empowered what really gets me is i um you know i have a lot of patients that will write me from around the country and they'll refer to themselves as just a regular person and i'm not that smart and really i want to tell patients you're really smarter about your body than anyone else you've lived in it longer uh-huh. than anyone else and i want you not to just feel like a regular person Or just, you know, not as smart. You're smart in ways that your doctor isn't. Mm -hmm. And I think that taking the lead with your own health and with your own health care and being discerning about which doctors you invite into your life is really very helpful.
0: And I like that term, invite into your life. I think that really is an empowering way for people to see it, you know, that they actually Mm -hmm. do have control over this. Now, when it comes to... Clinics, then. So you have your clinic. Um, can you little we'll talk just briefly here, and I and I I'm, I'm going to be cognizant of your time here, but uh, about ideal medical clinics and how to find one. Um, you know, resources in that that regard that can people help people escape from these you know, these these major systems where they're really running people through in seven minutes with a, with yeah, a physician. Yeah,
1: if they go to idealmedicalcare.org, which is my website, there's a little button at the top, find out al- the ideal clinics near you. It's not a completely updated map, but you will be able to start and find some clinics, possibly in your own neighborhood. And feel free to email me. You can contact me through that page, and I can give you more clinics that might have opened in your area because I do keep track of those. And uh, one thing that I think is really helpful that we should all do, patients and physicians, is try to use proper vocabulary to describe what we're really looking for, which is why I think the term ideal medical care is like kind of universally applicable to everyone. It's an inarguable phrase, like who could really be against ideal mm-hmm. medical care? And it puts patients and physicians on the same page because sometimes physicians will use terms like direct uh, primary care or concierge or boutique clinics and things like that. And some of those terms you really lose patience when you're trying to describe what those clinics are. Mm-hmm. And I think if we could just kind of use a term that everyone understands, which is ideal medical care, and that would be, you know, relationship driven, where you really have that strong bond with your physician over time versus production-driven care because i think those are the two types of care that are your options in this country you're either in a production-driven clinic or a relationship-driven clinic and so i just wanted to you know encourage patients to really use the right terminology so that they understand what they're looking for and what they're not looking for
0: so. No, that's an excellent point too. I think that goes with everything. Is if know exactly what you're looking for, and and then also to be able to say what it is that you don't want, because that's just as important as knowing what you do want. So, well, thank you so much, Pamela. This was a a, a great talk, and and um, I I think I could probably talk to you for three, four, five hours. So maybe I'll have to get you back on uh, the show again in a future date. But thank you so much for coming on. Oh, besides idealmedicalcare.org, is there any other websites or any place else that they can see you online?
1: Uh, well, if they want to go to my blog, it's on there. I have a lot of fun little blog stories. And if you like that you know, idea of having the chicken soup for the soul book for <laughs> patients, it's called pet goats and pap Okay. And if And if you happen to be a doctor listening, beahappydoctor.com has a lot of the, um, you know, services that I help, you know, physicians to design these practices. So so there you go. Uh, You got everything now. All
0: right. All right. Well, thank you so much. And for everybody else, stay well.